We are in our third session in our series of studies in the book of Joel. In chapter 1, we saw about the devastation that was coming to Israel because of the unprecedented locust invasion. Now in chapter 2, Joel chapter 2 moves forward to the end of the age where the day of the Lord is mentioned, which leads to the return of Christ and the judgment of the nations. Now, uh, prophecy, day of the Lord, a sign of judgment, the locust invasion. And then, you know, that judgment is also going to come in its fullest measure at the end of the age where the return of Christ and the judgment of the nations is also called as the day of the Lord. So, Joel is now prophesying not just to that immediate uh, time, but is also prophesying into the future. Now, normally when you think about darkness, you know, we normally think of it as evil. We speak about light you know, as good and darkness as evil. And oftentimes, you know, a lot of the uh, you know, books or uh, movies you know, would speak about the fight against you know, the light over the darkness or the good over the evil and you know, the good winning. Or some of them may speak about the evil winning. But here in this passage, you know, we learn about how darkness is also coming from God. Okay? Darkness and thunder and destructive power are seen as manifestations of God's power. They are not seen as manifestations of the evil one. They are seen as manifestations of God's power. But in the midst of all this, the message that we are learning is that even though darkness may increase, it will still be overcome by the light. So, in our first session, we looked about, you know, teaching uh, lessons or uh, learning moments, you know, from the events that are happening. Now, that's what you know, chapter 2 is speaking about. The darkness, the bad events that are happening in the world around us today, let's learn from that because this is as much a manifestation of God's power. Because if you notice at the end in verse 11, it speaks about this is the Lord's army. Remember, darkness does not have an independent existence apart from God. Remember, at creation, you know, he separated the light from the darkness, okay? So, darkness is not independent of God. He is at work even in the darkness. And that's something that we must definitely pick up. And that is why even from a, a spiritual angle, you know, Christian mystics, you know, have called a, uh, a period in which we don't see the hand of God in our lives. It seems very dark. They have called this as the dark night of the soul. So even in the dark night of the soul, God still shines. Okay, And that's the important thing when we are <laughs> learning about the day of the Lord. You know? When God does appear in blessing, Oftentimes, the blessing becomes the attraction. We are attracted to the blessing and we think more about the blessing. 
But when God comes in the darkness and pain, then we are driven to God. Our focus then becomes on, a, on God because we want to survive the darkness. Our focus is then not on the darkness and the pain. Our focus is on God. So we must ask ourselves, even today, when we see things happening, smoke, fire, darkness, you know, okay, do we see God's hand in it? You know? Do we see the, you know, the magnificent power of God at work even in the darkness? Or have we become so blind to his presence, so used to his absence, you know, that we don't see him when he is really present? We want to see God only during the, you know, the blessing time, or we see the hand of God there. But when the darkness and the pain, when the Bible tells us that this is very much you know, a manifestation of God's power and presence. Remember, in the book of Samuel, we read about Eli, who did not recognize God, who did not recognize God. He couldn't hear the voice of God. He was a priest. He should have been able to identify, but he was not. Why? Because he, the light had grown dim. So even this evening, when you're looking at this passage, we must ask ourselves, do we see God's hand in the negative things that are happening in the world, in the evil that is happening in the world, okay? Or do we just try and, you know, uh, explain off all those things by some natural explanations? Remember, God is the one who is in charge, okay? God is the one who is in charge. He is in charge of Satan also. Satan is not the boss, okay? So whatever is happening, God is the one in charge. And if we can only see God's hand and recognize the day of the Lord, it would either be a day of joy and gladness for us, or it would be a time of sorrow, okay? So let's get into this passage this evening and learn some important you know, truths from this passage. Verse 1, if you notice, is an attention getter, you know. It is an attention getter, where it says, Blow a trump in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. You know? Calamity of calamities. Problems are going to increase. You know? The day of the Lord is coming near. So take notice. Take notice. It is a call for attention. So God is confronting his people with a word of warning through his prophet Joel. Remember, you know, this is a big time warning, not just a gentle reminder. You know, it's a big time warning. In Joel 1, we read about the invasion of the locusts, the famine, the loss of resources. You know, there's a total destruction because of the locusts. You know, and this was an unprecedented uh, precedented proportions an event that has never happened before. The consequences of this was far-reaching. Crops were destroyed, fields were wrecked, and the harvest had perished. Worship was also disrupted. The people of God were unable to bring their offerings, you know, which caused the priests to mourn. It was a time of lament. Okay? So in this scenario, when things have happened like this, the prophet Joel is calling and saying, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm. 
Now, the trumpets were used in the Old Testament times for summoning the congregation, for calling the congregation together for a meeting. Okay? It was also used to sound the alarm in times of war. It was to get the attention of the people together for some national event that was going to take place. So, this is why the trumpets were sound. The trumpets were sound to make sure that people are getting together. There's something that's going to happen soon, so come together. Whether it is coming together for worship in the congregation or there's a war that is going to take place, it was primarily used to get the attention of the people. Now today, you and I, who have been placed in this world as uh, uh, ministers of the gospel or disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are the ones whom God has placed to be individuals who are going to sound the alarm, to sound the alarm, to say, hey guys, look here, this is how it's all going to end, you know, so blow a trumpet in Zion. If you notice, you know, it starts off first in warning the people of God. Zion speaking about, you know, Jerusalem, the temple, blow a trumpet among God's people and sound an alarm on my holy temple. To speak to the church of today to say, hey, don't be complacent. The day of the Lord is coming near. It is going to be a time of judgment. So don't take it in a relaxed manner. Don't take it in a relaxed manner. The shofar that was used for blowing the trumpet was the ancient equivalent of an air raid siren. Now, we have been in the times when you know, the India-Pakistan war was there and you would have heard the arid sirens and you know, they say, hey guys, make sure you're not out, everything is closed and everything is darkened. You know. If you have been in a war time, you would know what an arid siren is all about. It's an alarm, it's a call to say, hey guys, be on the alert. So the trumpet, the shofar, was uh, sounding the alarm to get the people together. So that's the responsibility that God has given to you and me. God has placed us in the body. God has placed us in the church you know, to blow the trumpet in Zion, to sound an alarm, to sound an alarm, to say, hey, you know, be sure that you, know, you get to a, a safe place. Now, when a tsunami is going to hit, when there's going to be heavy rains and thunderclouds, floods going to take place, you know, then they issue a, a warning, a warning, an alert. Make sure that you get to safe places. And that is the blowing of the trumpet. The safe place that you and I have in the midst of all the evil that is there in the world is to come into God's presence, to rely on His death on the cross for our salvation. So a lot of people even today are going through the motions of religion and you and I are called to blow the trumpet in Zion, to sound an alarm, to say, hey, that is not going to be sufficient. You cannot depend on your good works to get you into heaven. You have to depend on what Christ has done for us. Today as a society, you know, when we are thinking about the pandemic and the lockdowns and all that are taking place, you know, None of us knows what is going to happen in the future. Now, we may put everything into place and say, if we do this, it will reduce. If we do this, you know, you know, 
things will be curtailed and uh, 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 contained rather, you know, when we can think of all these things, you know, but there's no guarantee for anything, isn't it? So as a result, the future may look very bleak. But instead of asking God, you know, when will all this be over, perhaps we should be asking God how we should respond to what he is doing today. Even if we don't understand it, we should ask what his purpose is, what he wants us to do. Have you ever thought about this, you know, in the light of all that has happened in this one last year? Maybe this evening we are thanking God that we are safe, but so many people have lost their lives. And maybe, you know, we are thinking about when will all this get over? But rather than thinking of when will all this get over, let's ask ourselves, God has kept us alive here on earth for a purpose. What is the purpose? Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Okay. Moving further in verse 2, there's a warning that is given concerning the day of the Lord. Verse 2 says, let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, and a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Now, the prophet is moving on from you know, a description of the uh, devastation of the locusts into a description of the invading army. This is the warning that he is giving. You know? And if you notice, you know, the theme of the day of the Lord's you know, comes in verse 1 of chapter 2 and also in verse 11. You know? It both opens and as well as closes this uh, passage that we are looking at this evening. So, a description is given of what is going to happen in this particular time. There's going to be darkness, you know, like the darkness you know, that came you know, on the land of Egypt, which was one of the plagues. And also the plague of locusts when they come over, there is total darkness because they cover the whole earth. What God delimited at creation, what do you mean by delimited? When he separated you know, the light from the darkness, now what happens? That darkness returns. That darkness returns. And that's the imagery that you know, uh, you know, Joel is using over here. Even Amos you know, also uses the same you know, darkness and gloom to correct Israel's optimistic you know, conception of the day of the Lord. The Israelites thought that the day was one to be a blessing and light and brightness, but Amos corrects them in that perception. Even Joel here, if you notice, is you know, correcting in that, uh, that wrong perception. Hey, I'm looking forward for the day of the Lord. Are you really looking forward for the day of the Lord? It's going to be a time of darkness and gloom. It's not going to be a time of blessing and light and you know, brightness if you have been doing your own thing and expecting that the day of the Lord will be a time of gladness and joy. We have a tendency to focus on the happy parts. When we think about the return of Jesus in glory and his ushering us into heaven, okay? Yes, you know, these are 
good things for us to meditate upon. But we must also remember that Jesus' return not only completes his redemption, but it also means judgment. It also means judgment. Yes, you know, for the unbeliever as well as the believer. For the unbeliever, if he is not saved, you know, he is judged you know, to be in hell forever. For the believer also, there is going to be a time of judgment. So yes, we look forward for Christ's coming to take us to be with him. But let's also make sure that that is the day of the Lord is also a time of judgment. So let's make sure that we are living lives that are pure and holy and prepared so that we don't face you know, the wrath of the judgment and miss out on the rewards. Charles Swindoll puts it across this way where he says, God's judgment is a waiting wise judgment. It is never at the mercy of an irrational temper, impulsiveness or misinformation. It always responds at exactly the right time and in exactly the right measure. And when his people repent, God's judgment steps aside to let his mercy and grace flow. So when you think about the day of the Lord and the judgment, it's not that the Lord is going to lose his temper. You know, his judgment is true. It is not impulsive. It is not irrational. Okay. So we must make sure that the time that God has given to us here on earth, we use it wisely to repent so that God's judgment you know, will not be on us, but rather we will experience his grace and mercy. Then if you notice from verse 2 on to verse 11, he expands you know, the details about the nature of the day, what's really going to happen. If the locust plague of chapter 1 was a precursor of the locust-like plague of the Assyrian armies of chapter 2, the judgment affected by the Assyrian armies was in turn to be a harbinger of a still greater eschatological judgment. Okay, Locust army first stage, then you have the Assyrian army taking them into captivity, but that's still not the final day of the Lord. It's going to be still a future, you know, into the future when Christ comes back again, when Christ comes back again. And in this particular verse where it speaks about the Garden of Eden, which was before has become a place of desolation, you know, it also shows, you know, that, you know, when God's judgment comes in, what we have thought was beautiful, you know, what we have thought was, you know, permanent in God's perspective, it is not. Okay. How often people focus on their uh, beauty or on the material, thinking that is what life is all about. But when the judgment comes, you know, all that is removed. So this evening, we are going to focus our attention on these verses and look at 12 characteristics of this day of the Lord. 12 characteristics of this day of the Lord. The first one is that it's going to be a fearsome event. It's going to be a fearsome event. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. The word that is used there in Hebrew for tremble means actually to quake or to shake. And from this root word, we get you know, such ideas as shaking in anger or shaking in fear or shaking in anticipation. It's like an 
an intense feeling inside you know, because of you know, the, the greatness of the tragedy. It's going to be a fearsome event. And as I said, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. The second one is, and the second characteristic, is an imminent return. It's an imminent return. It's a certain event. It is also a soon coming event. The day of the Lord is certain. Christ coming back is certain. And his coming soon is also certain. Like an air raid siren, with the blowing of the shofar comes the warning. The day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Actually, one uh, Hebrew you know, understanding would be, you know, instead of saying it's coming, it can literally read, it has come. In other words, although the judgment is still in the future, it is so certain that it will come to pass that God is seeing it as already having taken place. So the judgment of the Lord, the day of the Lord is coming back again is definitely a, a reality. It is certain. Okay. Now, when you're thinking about this word coming soon or is at hand, or in English we use the word imminent, imminent, isn't it? You know? Now, you know, when you're thinking about this word imminent, you know, it is taken from the Latin word imminence, in turn from imminere, which is a verb which means to hang or over. Now, when you're thinking about this picture of the imminent day of the Lord, then it means that it is hanging over the heads of the reader. Joel is writing this. It means that it is impending. It is just hanging on top. It's soon going to fall down. So Joel wants to make this absolutely sure that his readers get this point, that it is hanging on top of their heads. You know? So he mentions this phrase, day of the Lord, three times, one in every chapter to say the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is near. So it's an imminent event. Christ coming back is not you know, uh, a futuristic hope, you know? but it is an imminent, it is going to happen, and it is going to happen soon. Third characteristics of this day of the Lord is that it is characterized by darkness and gloom. Darkness and gloom. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The word that is used there in Hebrew for darkness means you know, an absence of light and figuratively an absence of moral values, an absence of moral values. Now, when you're looking at the world today, would you say that the world is living in light or living in darkness? An absence of moral values. What was considered very specifically wrong in a few years back, now people say it is perfectly right and it has also been legalized in a lot of places, all these wrong things. Now, that's the day of darkness. That's the day of darkness that we are living in. And the Bible is saying that it is only going to increase further and further. It's going to be a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Not just darkness, but thick darkness. And our moral values are going to go absolutely down. And the more we read and see what is happening, this is definitely true, which we can be certain then it is a sign of 
the coming of the Lord. The fourth Thena characteristic is that it's been, it's characterized by innumerable troops, innumerable troops. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. When you're thinking about this phrase, as the dawn is spread over the mountain, think of the sun rising over the horizon, slowly but surely, but spreading from side to side so that the entire horizon is lit up by its brightness. Okay, So just as much as when the sun gets up, rises up and it covers and gives light to the whole place, okay, it says so, so is there a great and mighty people. So is there a great and mighty people. Joel is referring here now to that horrible time which Zechariah prophesied in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 2, where he says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. Great and mighty people, as the dawn spreads over the mountains and other innumerable troops that will be gathered together. That is part of God's plan for the day of the Lord for judgment. Fifthly, it's unique in its manifestation and its devastation. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. Okay. So, when we read this phrase, it will definitely you know, give us the certainty that Joel is not speaking about the locusts, Joel is not speaking about the Assyrian invasion, but Joel is speaking now about the final day of judgment, because there will never be again anything after it or like it, okay? Because if you notice, the people of Israel, have, the Jews have been destroyed time and time again, you know, but, you know, this aspect of uh, now what God is going to do is going to be a, a one-time event. You know, it is unique in its devastation. There will be nothing like this ever again. So the description would definitely point to a, a future, a future event that will be fulfilled. Sixthly, it accomplishes complete destruction. It accomplishes complete destruction. Okay. First of all, it speaks about a fire that consumes before them. The armies of the ancient world regularly burned the fields of lands they invaded. When the armies came, if you notice, you know, Jesus said not one stone would be left upon another. You know, when the uh, Babylonians came, you know, they destroyed the city. You know, when in AD 70, you know, Roman army destroyed Everything is burnt, even the gold that was there in the temple was melted down. Like a fire consumes before them, behind them a flame burns. If you notice in this particular verse, you know, uh, uh, Joel is speaking about the before and after. Okay, He's saying now a fire is there before and behind now there's only a flame that is burning. Everything is totally destroyed. It's just the embers that are burning. Then he says the land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them. What was really lush and beautiful is now totally 
destroyed. This comparison of the Garden of Eden is confirmation that Joel and the people of his time believed in the historicity of the Garden of Eden. A lot of people would today ask, you know, is there, was there really a Garden of Eden? But this verse will definitely tell us or show us the importance of the historicity of this place in a Garden of Eden, like the land that is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them. And nothing at all escapes them. That is a total devastation. No escape whatsoever. But it's an interesting thing, you know, the Hebrew word that is used there for escape, peleta, okay, is used one more time in the same chapter. In chapter 2, verse 32, it says, it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. Here it says, there's nothing at all escapes. 2.32 says, there will be those who escape. Who will be those? As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls, whom the Lord calls. So it is true that nothing at all escapes the devastation in the day of the Lord. But God provides a way of escape to any and to all who call out to him. In the midst of wrath, God remembers mercy. <coughs> the day of the Lord deploys the strongest imaginable war machinery. Now, the analogy from the locust is now taken in to expand further into how the final war machinery would be like, okay? Now, when it says their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, so they run with the noises of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Okay, So there's a, a likening of the locust to the horses. <coughs> now, the Italian word for locust <coughs> is actually a word that means little horse. And the German word for locust you know, is a word that means hay horse. In other words, both in, in a Italian and in German, you know, the words that are used for locus also have the reference to the horse. Now, now, why is this so? Because they say if anyone should examine accurately the head of a locust, he will find that it's exactly like that of a horse. <laughs> so, Joel takes this now analogy of you know, the locusts who are like horses, speaking now into the future. <coughs> of the army of horses, about the army of horses. He compares this to an advancing army to war horses and chariots, which was actually the war machines of that day. You know, now today we may not be using you know, horses for you know, warfare, but this was the war machinery of that day. Okay, So <coughs> these verses then describe the great devastation that will be caused by the mighty army in the day of the Lord. Now, if you notice in Revelation chapter 9, Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, there is a similarity. This is again what's going to happen in the day of the Lord, as mentioned in the book of Revelation. Revelation 9, verse 2 to 7 says, 
the fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss, and when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of a sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During these days, men will seek death, <coughs> but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they were something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. That's what's mentioned in the book of Revelation. And Jude here is speaking about what is going to happen in the day of the Lord, where this type of war machinery, strongest imaginable, is going to be used. <coughs> then number eight, it's going to spread fear and panic, nervousness and despair. Fear and panic and despair before them. The people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. The word that's used for anguish basically means you know, to writhe you know, or to fear or to grieve or to shake with fear. You know. And specifically, it is spoken of you know, like the labor pains, you know, intense you know, you know, agony, intense anguish. Okay? That's the imagery that is used over here. Okay? Now, Joel is no doubt depicting something more here than the devastation which was caused by the locusts in his own day. He's now speaking into the future and saying at that time when the day of the Lord comes, people will be intense anguish. Just trying going from here to there, hoping they will die, hoping, asking for the rocks to fall upon them, you know, because they know that the judgment is definitely coming near soon you know, on them. All faces turn pale. All faces turn pale. It's like when you, you know, suddenly, you know, when you're so afraid, you know, the blood drains out from your system. It could also be the other side where blood rushes. You know? So the word that, that is used for pale could signify both ways. So when either your blood has rushed into your system because of, you know, sudden you know, fear or the suddenness of what's going to happen, or that fear has gripped you, so there's a draining out of blood totally, you know. And that's what will happen in the day of the Lord. Those individuals have not responded to God when they thought this was not going to come, and it has come, then they recognize, hey, there's no other option. This is a reality. So there's so much of anguish, there's fear, there's panic, there's hopelessness, and there is despair, even in the world today. When you look at all that is happening, the events that is happening in the world, there's definitely fear and panic and hopelessness and despair, isn't it? Why? Because they think there's no other alternative. But you and I who know the Lord, we have that alternative. So we don't have to live in anguish, but we can have hope and faith during these times. Number nine, there's an organized, relentless and thorough assault. 
organized, relentless, and thorough assault. Now, if you notice, all these words you know, that are used in these verses you know, is uh, very fitting to the day of the locust invasion. But they are also speaking about how just as, just as much as the locusts are organized, even on the day of the Lord, the final day of judgment, things are going to be organized, relentless, and thorough. Look at the phrases that are used. They run like mighty men, you know, or like a group, you know, who, a commander force, which is in high morale, charging their enemy with vigor and valor. They climb the wall like soldiers. No wall is too impregnable. No obstacle can deter their advance. Only victory is anticipated. You know, pressing on, pressing on. They march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths, okay? Very orderly. It's not a haphazard judgment. Everything is in order. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path, okay? They march everyone in his path. When they burst through their defenses, you know, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses, they enter into the windows like a thief, okay? Now, this is speaking about how organized you know, the final judgment is going to be. Now, we may look at things around and say there is chaos, you know, but everything is in order because God is the one who has organized it. The judgment that God has planned, it is definitely going to be orderly. He knows what he is doing. He knows what is planned. Number 10, it is going to be accompanied by a cosmic upheaval. Before them, the earth's quake, heavens tremble, sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. Now remember, obviously, this is not speaking about the locusts. This is speaking about that final day of judgment. It's going to be accompanied by a cosmic upheaval, okay? The quaking earth, the trembling heavens, the darkened sun and moon, and the lightless stars you know, are all evidence that the Lord is coming with his army to execute judgment, to execute judgment, okay? Now, if you notice in the next verse, you know, the Bible tells us that this is actually the Lord's army, but here in verse 10, when it speaks about the sun and the moon being darkened and the stars no longer shining, this is not only spoken of in Amos. If you notice in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 to 13, it says, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, rather than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble. The earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. So the day of the Lord is not spoken only in the book of Amos. This is a reality. Even the prophet Isaiah speaks about it. And even Jesus speaks about it in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, verses 29 and 30. It says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, 
the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So, these are events that God says you know, in different passages that this is going to happen. It is imminent, it is certain, it is definitely soon coming. So, what's our responsibility? Blow the trumpet in Zion, you know. Get the church ready. Let it be a pure bride, holy before the Lord. Speak to the non-Christian world and encourage them to respond to the grace and mercy of God. Number 11, this is authorized by the omnipotent Lord himself. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. So in this verse, if you notice, God takes responsibility. God takes responsibility for this army. God takes responsibility for what is going to happen, the chaos, the darkness, you know, the desolation that is going to take place. He says, I am in charge. I am in charge. This is my army. And finally, number 12, it's going to be unparalleled and unstoppable. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Who can endure it? So in these verses, verses in verse 11, the focus moves now <coughs> from the human attackers you know, you know, and the attacked to the earth and the, in the earth and the heavens. Now the move is shifted to <coughs> the God who is the creator of this. <coughs> the scripture now speaks here in these verses about how God is the one who is doing all these events that have been spoken about. Okay, God is the head of this army. He is the head of this army. So, when you're looking at these events that are happening, question would be you know, to ask God, you know, how is he the head? What is our role in this? John, let me close with this and a, a statement by John Calvin when he comments on this passage, reminding us that its final end is not to preach judgment for judgment's sake, but to warn people to turn from sin. The whole you know, content of this passage is not to speak about judgment for judgment's sake, but to warn people, hey, judgment is coming, you know, blow the trumpet so that you turn from sin. The object of the narrative then is to make the people sensible that it was now no time for taking rest. For the Lord, having long tolerated their wickedness, was now resolved to pour upon them in full torrent his whole fury. It's a time, you know, to wake up. It's a time to make people sensible, you know. Guys, take stock of the situation. It's no time for relaxing, okay. You know, God is not going to tolerate wickedness. Wake up, make amends, you know, repent. Let us then be reminded of our need to repent and so prompt us to share the gospel <coughs> more eagerly. <coughs> Two application questions for us this evening. <coughs> Number one, trumpet inside. 
the place where you're in, where you fellowship together. Are you blowing the trumpet in Zion? A call for alarm, a call to be ready, a call to be on the alert. Are you preaching this message of the soon coming of the Lord and the judgment that's going to follow so that individuals who are sleeping in Zion will wake up? Number two, what are you doing today to prepare for the day of the Lord? If the day of the Lord is coming soon, you know, Christ is coming soon, what are you doing today to prepare for that? What are the practical things that you are doing? Let's be a, let it be a, a practical evaluation of our lives this evening. Let's bow our heads in prayer together.